Welcome to the Juggling Without Balls podcast. My name is Monica Parkin and I am your host. And every week on the show, I'm going to be talking to powerful, successful women who juggle it all. And when I say juggle it all, I mean everything. Kids, health, aged parents, careers, relationships, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So stick around, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a seat and enjoy the show. Hello, jugglers, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, my guest is Danielle Dobson, author of Breaking the Gender Code. Danielle interviewed more than 50 men and women who are leaders in business and also lead parents, and she put together those results into a book called Breaking the Gender Code. And in that book, she explores the codes we live by so that we can break them and create new ones. So excited to welcome Danielle today. Thank you, Monica. It's great to be here. So excited about speaking to you. Yeah, it's great. We managed to connect our times for anyone who's wondering. It's it's four in the afternoon here in Canada. I think it's nine o'clock in the morning in Australia. I don't know what time of year it is there, but it's just a beautiful sunny day here. Uh, It's winter here. Oh, goodness. Yeah. (laughs) So in a minute, we're going to get into the details of the book. But do you want to start maybe just give me a little bit of background into what led you, you know, down the path to do this research and then to compile it and to turn it into a book? Great question. And I'll just do a very summarized version. I was sitting in a cozy cabin in Lake Washington, Seattle, and it was October 2017. Two days into a three-day business like coaching intensive with my coach, Pam. And I am completely stuck. I've hit a brick wall. I just, this problem that's, you know, I've I've had for a while. So I didn't know how I'd be able to be the parent that I wanted to be, but also invest in my business and the success that I wanted in my business. I felt this real sort of tension around that. And I knew from my work as a wellness coach, and I'd been a personal trainer before that and in my corporate world that I wasn't alone in this struggle and that many women, working mothers, felt this same tension. And as a result of that tension, I could see my clients were burning out, feeling exhausted, feeling overwhelmed, just feeling like they weren't doing you know, enough. And, and I was experiencing this myself. And so I wondered where it all came from. And, yeah. and Pam said she could see that I was struggling and, and she realized that it was my beliefs that were holding me back. Right. And so she said, you've got to understand what's behind that belief, Dania. What is it? That belief that you share with professional working mothers that tells you that, like, where did it come from? What can you do about it? And how can you move forward? And so that day, that moment, that was the birthplace of a market research project uh, called The Wonders of Women Leaders. And that set me off on this path about (laughs) writing the book. So that Um, was the moment. Yeah. So it wasn't even this little bit of curiosity. It was you actually had this obstacle that you were trying to get past. And in order to get past that, you had to actually dive into the reasons behind it. And it just so happens that those things affect more than just you. It's a lot of people and that those answers can actually help more than a few people. So the basis of that study, how did you structure that? What did that look like? Another great question. It's, it's really funny. I've got to be totally honest. I never set out to write a book. I'll just be <laughs> totally transparent there. That was not my objective. The initial idea was to interview about 10 women who were leading at work and leading at oh, home. 10. Okay. So obviously it grew from 10. Okay. Interesting. 
So it's about 10, just to get an idea of cross-section. What I did is I started reconnecting with friends and contacts in the business world, which had been my home base for 13 years. I started tapping back into those networks and I started interviewing women who are leading at work and also leading at home as a lead parent. I wanted to understand what was working well across all areas of their life to be able to leverage that and also what the challenges were. And also how being a leader contributes to their parenting and how being a parent contributes to their leadership style. So I interviewed CEOs, CIOs, CFOs, politicians, journalists. There's a neuroscientist in there and another senior scientist, HR directors, covering all industries. Yeah, because it just kept growing and growing this kind of momentum. And I ended up interviewing 52 people and transcribing our interviews. Wow. So quick mm. question. So you said you wanted to ask what was working, which it sounds as opposed to what's not working. Can you give me an example of what some of those questions were that you asked? And did you have a standard set of questions that you asked everyone? Yeah, great question. So I had a list of questions that I'd send them ahead of time. So their executive assistant or they would want to know the kind of questions that I was asking because these are extremely busy people with responsibility. So they wanted to know that their time wasn't wasted. So I always just start, and this is where the coaching part of it comes in with me, creating the safe space and the confidentiality and the vault and just basically asking, how's your day been? And what does a good day look like? So a very open-ended question, but also very specific at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And and some would say personally or professionally, is it at home or at work? And I ask all sorts of other questions. What does support look like for you? What gets in the way of having a good day? What things around mentors and networking, questions around that? What are the challenges that you have? And one of the questions that enabled me to really understand was what's changed since you've become a parent? How has it changed? What I found is that was giving them a safe space to just speak and be who they are with no agenda, no outcomes. They knew it was confidential, just having a conversation. And they had an opportunity to just express how they really felt, not the mask and the facade. Yeah, real life. And what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This isn't going anywhere. You can give me the real stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that was really brilliant. And I feel really privileged. Yeah. And do you feel like they got a little vulnerable with you? Absolutely. Pretty yeah. much every single one. In, I ended up interviewing five men. It sounds like when you interviewed the men, if I understood that correctly, that they were also like the lead parents in their family dynamic. Is that correct? Or yes. just a yep. parent? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And what, so we can know what maybe you expected, but what didn't you expect? Like what surprised you? What was, wow, wasn't expecting this answer. Yeah, so many things. And and sometimes I would walk away from these interviews and, whoa. Number one was the extent of the positive impact that these women were having on everyone else around them. Mm. They didn't actually realise what extent this was having because I actually interviewed some direct reports of some of them as well. So just Okay, just to get that balance, yeah. Yeah, or just a conversation or something. For sure, yeah. And this is the thing, like from the outside, they look like wonder women achieving incredible levels of success, but not one thought that they were worthy of the Wonder Woman title. They just thought that what they did, who they were and how they operated was what they and society expected. It's just what you do. Just what you do. And they found it much easier to see brilliance in others than themselves. So that blew me away. And that really 
needed to be paid attention to. But there's another one was that how much parenting fundamentally changed them. And that isn't a surprise as a parent myself of three boys. I totally understand that. But what was surprising was how much it positively impacted their leadership and how they built skills of self-regulation, self-awareness, empathy, which is emotional intelligence skills 101, which is, you know, desperately needed in the workplace leadership and life right now. And then also they built skills of adaptability, prioritisation, creativity, innovation, empathy, creativity, all these critical skills once again needed in the workforce, yes, yet not paid attention to. And yet they happen every day in homes across the world, workplaces across the world where moms are juggling, I got to get this kid to this place and this kid to this place and this thing's happening and my phone's blowing up because this is going down. And they're able to somehow figure out how to get all that stuff done, get it done when it needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and organize other people too, not just themselves. Mm-hmm. You're like organizing little kittens that, that really are difficult to herd. These aren't adults necessarily, but you're also organizing these little people and their teachers and their workplace. And there's just all these moving pieces all day long that you don't even think about until you actually drill down and look at it. Absolutely. And this is, that's a really great way of putting it, the moving parts, because, and I love the title of your your podcast. I looked into juggling because I was like, why is it, why is that the default? Why do we all say that? And, and I look, you know, deep into it. And yes, I can see where that comes from. But one time I was having a moment and someone, there was like a whole lot of pressure. And I was like, I'm not going to say juggling in this moment. I'm going to say something else. And what just came out was I'm juggling, managing a lot of moving parts. And then I thought, and that's what you just mentioned something about yeah. that too. Like, yeah. Actually, we are experienced, successful, efficient project managers. And the project is life. Yeah. So we're actually managing these many moving parts of this project called life. And I thought, if we look at ourselves as project managers, rather than circus performers, which is essentially what a juggler is. It's great for entertainment, but but we've in our society value Mm -hmm. more highly a project manager, a project leader. And that's why I talk about lead parents all the time. There's a lot, there's leadership there. And I'm a single parent with three boys and I step into that since doing this research. It's, Mm -hmm. It's heavily impacted how I parent. It's stepping into that leadership role because I am the lead parent. I'm the leader of the house. I'm primarily, I'm the leader, I'm the lead parent. Following on from that too, having three boys, what kept coming up in the research? This was the thing that touched me the most was the stories of pay disparity, gender inequality, discrimination, inappropriate treatment of the workplace, and then how that extends to to unpaid labour in the home. And this is well documented and and many of us um, experience it. But what I what I found is like when other people are telling you these things and then you're doing some more research on it, it's almost like it triggers something deep inside you and you feel compelled to do something about it. So that's when I started on this, you know, investigative mission yeah. to uncover the gender code. Yeah. So that's what took me down that road. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And I know you speak about being single parent and I just have so much respect for single parents. They just literally carry it all on their shoulders. But even in a a traditional family of two spouses, Mm. you often have one spouse that 
picks up more in other areas. Like I have this amazing husband that will just pick up and oh, he'll do laundry, he'll cook on his night, whatever. But ultimately at the end of the day, when his workday is over, his workday is over. I'm mm. still helping the kids fill out their forms. I'm still making sure our insurance gets renewed, the bills get paid. Oh, and, and by the way, the mortgage renewal is up. Oh, and there's appointments to book next week. And are all the doors locked? Did the dogs get fed? Did the dog come in? There's just all these other pieces that are just not in his not sitting in his brain, taking up space the way they're taking up space in my brain. And it doesn't make it an unequal partnership. It's just they, there's more space allocated in my brain to all those, like you say, those moving pieces. And it really does feel like a project manager or the, the conductor of this huge orchestra sometimes. That's a beautiful way of putting it because it is a symphony, isn't it? Yeah, it's a dance. It is. And this is yeah. actually, that's what I spoke to a politician and she said she gets so sick of getting asked that question. How do you manage it? How do you do the juggle with your high profile role? And she said she likes to think of it more like a dance. So mm-hmm. some days you got to do a waltz. Some days yeah. you do a bit of hip hop. Some days you do some salsa. And it, and sometimes it's a mixture of all those yeah. things. So it's, I love your, yes, the yeah. symphony and the dance. And, yeah. and sometimes it's recovery day, right? Like sometimes yeah. it's a day where just, for me at least, sometimes everything just has to get put on hold and I just have to have a day to just plug the battery in and just reboot. Mm. But moving on. So let's talk about the name of the book. So the name of the book is called The Gender Code. Mm-hmm. What do you, what exactly do you mean by gender code? And what, how did you choose that title? Question. So oh, how I chose that title is I was looking at how we got to where we are right now. Okay. We're exhausted. We're, we're depleted. We still have pay inequality, a gender gap. Women still aren't valued with all these things. And it's like, how did we get here? What is it? So I went right back to evolutionary biology and neuroscience and sociology. I looked at all sorts of different ways to try and find answers. And being a bit of a science geek myself, I thought nature must be able to you know, provide the answers. So I went right back and I, I went you know, way, way back. And I came across this brilliant book by Angela Sayini. It's called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong Mm. and the Evidence to Rewrite or something or other. And essentially found that once we, so I'll, I'll just let everyone know, this is what I've come across and this is what I believe to be true. So just open-minded approach, but it's okay if you don't believe. But basically when we move from hunter-gatherer, into collecting resources. We had to protect our resources as tribes, as villages, as groups. And by doing that, we had to make sure that our male offspring was their offspring because they'd not only lose their resources if they weren't their offspring, but they could, and and they'd be embarrassed or whatever. What happened was mate guarding started. So women became part of that resource pool to be protected and guarded and hung onto and clung onto. And so that guarding around like mate guarding, like guarding their, you know, female, then became embedded into cultural code, like code cultures all throughout millennia. And if we look at a lot of cultures, and I mostly focus, focus on Western culture, I can speak more to that than any other cultures, so I won't speak to other cultures, but it is in every, it is in all elements of our culture about mate guarding. So, and women playing a support role to the male provider. So, the, so I came up with this with a gender code, which is a set of beliefs that we all recognize about the natural differences between men and women. Mm-hmm. And these beliefs create stereotypes. We've all been programmed with it for millennia. 
And it's actually like a societal algorithm. (laughs) And it's just so deeply embedded to everything we do that we don't question it, even when it creates real difficulties for families, for workplaces, for communities. But we don't need to be tied to that thinking anymore. There's science and neuroscience to back that up. But the programming along gender lines is really detrimental for every one of us because we can't then step into our own unique potential. So that's why I called it the gender code. Almost like this DNA, but it's not really DNA, but it's like a, it's a code that, like you say, has been just indoctrinated into our culture over a millennia and, and we're yeah. each fitting in these little boxes that we don't necessarily need to, to be in. Yeah, like major religious texts, the scientific community groups, schooling, all the major areas that influence our life. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is in chapter three, one of the things that you said, and I just want to read it here because it really stuck out for me. You said, when women are tired, stressed, or overwhelmed, instead of resting or recovering or investing positively in well-being, they may do even more to get back a sense of control. It's stuff piling on, stuff piling on. Instead of slowing down, it actually, what it reminded me of is that I Love Lucy episode. I don't know if you've ever seen it, the candy factory where it just keeps coming out faster and faster <laughs> and they can't keep up. And you're mm. thinking, why don't they just turn off the conveyor belt? But instead they keep going faster and faster. And I feel like that's actually mm. what I do in my own life. The more responsibilities pile up, the more stuff I have to do. Instead of stepping back and going, okay, what can I delegate? What can I let go of? How can I look at this? I just dig in deeper and harder. And it sounds like I'm not the only one. It sounds like this is a pretty common theme. Mm, And lately, it is a very common theme. And I think a lot of it is based on how we see productivity, so productive tasks versus non-productive tasks. So if we look at work, for instance, and how we value work and how we see work, when we work, we have measurable, tangible outcomes that can give us feedback on how we're doing. So how many emails we've sent, how many proposals we've sent, how many reports we've done, meetings with direct reports, reports, how many sales. So when we work and invest our time and energy into working, then we know that we're at least doing something. But then if we think about taking a break and taking a step back or um, doing nothing, that seems to go completely against the grain. And we don't a lot of the times make that connection because if we go and take a walk or we have a coffee with, with a friend or take a bath or any of those things, there's no measurable, tangible outcome for that. And it's certainly not comparable to a work-related one. Like yeah. I, I look at it, the difference between how we value productivity and caring. Yeah, there's no report card, there's no paycheck, there's no graph that says you did a great job. It's just this, you did it. No one's going to notice. It just had to happen. Absolutely. And the the great thing is I, I was working, when I was pregnant with my first, I was in corporate America one week working and then I was a first time parent the next. And so there wasn't much transition. I know in, in, in America, women walk, work right up till they're in labour, like one of my colleagues did. So what happened with that is a lot of challenging things. Learned really quickly that this parenting gig, there's a lot of investment in time and energy. I'd gone from like spreadsheets and you know, reports and total control and organisation to total... <laughs> No control, crying baby. Yeah, totally out of my depth. No skills in this area, and straight away it was like, okay, 
this is really different. There's uh, like, no, you don't get paid at the end of the week or the month. You don't get a appraisal. You don't get bonuses, promotion, production. You put all this effort and energy into it and it's a long game. You know, it's a long, slow burn of every moment, every day showing up. And I think that helped me to let go of that productivity outcome. That is a great way to look at it. It's a long game because now my kids are teenagers and they're just turning into these phenomenal human beings that I love spending time with that are just doing the most amazing things. And now all that stuff, I feel like it's paying off. But at the time, and again, I have the most wonderful husband, but he'd come home from work and he'd be looking around at this total disaster. That, <laughs> and he'd be like, so what did you do today? And I would just rip his head off. Like, you have no idea what my day was like. And then it got even worse because at six weeks I went back to work. So then it starts all night long and then before work and then after work. And you just feel like you're just doing all this unpaid stuff and you see no reward and no end in sight. And, and now the other side of that mountain, I'm like, oh yeah, that was so worth it. But back mm-hmm. then I couldn't, like I couldn't see the finish line. And so to be able to look there and see that finish line, I can see how that would have been so helpful if someone had given me that little image to put in front of me at the mm. time. Absolutely. It's all on hope, isn't it? Hope. Yeah. It's hope and faith and trust in yourself that you're doing the right thing. And we might speak about it later, but that's, I think, one of the things that I've found with the women who seem to feel fulfilled and seemed to be feeling like they were doing a good enough job. They had moments, of course, but they knew who they truly were and they knew what was right at the core of them and what was most important to them and they used that as an internal compass. So whatever decision they made was the right decision because it was the decision that they made. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing stuff there, but that's what I observed. And I think we don't know absolutely in the moment, in the thick of it. But I, but this also helps dial down the guilt too, like yeah. the parent guilt, is knowing who you truly are operating from that place and making decisions from that. And then there's less opportunity for regret and, and guilt and shame and self-judgment because you're doing the best you can with what you have available. Yeah. Yeah. And you're planting seeds. You might not see that crop for a few years, but you're essentially, you're planting seeds in a garden is really what you're doing. And you can stare at them all day, but it's not going to make them grow faster. Yeah. Really great information there. Let's talk about Charles Darwin for a minute because there's almost Mm -hmm. a a part of a chapter, a whole chapter there. And what I'd actually like to talk about is those bonobos. I don't know if anyone knows what a bonobo is, but you say in the book, you know, that Charles Darwin let you down, but you've forgiven him. And then you go on to talk about the bonobos that he doesn't actually that he didn't know about or he didn't discuss. Yeah, absolutely. So Charles Darwin was one of my evolutionary biology heroes. I remember learning about all his work in school. I'm like, yes, this makes sense. Survival of the fittest and adaption and adaptation. So I looked to him to find answers about the gender code. And it turns out that he actually wholeheartedly believed that women were biologically less intelligent than men. And even that he was challenged on it, by some uh, women scientists, women, because they weren't allowed to be scientists. And he actually said no. And evidence in the animal kingdom was the lion and his mane and the peacock and his feathers, basically saying that males have to be more strategic, they have to be more um, handsome and energetic about attracting a mate. And then he looked for evidence in the human world 
to support this, that the men were more like dominant, you know, intelligent because they're strategic and all right. the rest of it. And he didn't see, he all he saw an abundance of evidence. Yeah. He didn't see any women um, adventurers, scientists, politicians, artists, poets, historians. They were there, but they weren't recognized or known. Because society wasn't set up for them to shine, for them to <laughs> even have an opportunity to attend to higher education or whatever. Absolutely. And the Enlightenment period, where science really started taking off and being more privileged than religion or a different sort of way of looking at the world, women were completely shut out in that mm-hmm. stage, completely shut out. And I could go on and on with this, but to, to be succinct. So basically that that shows us that Darwin's views and work, as much as it was brilliant in many other ways, was determined by the lens of the society and the culture that he was living in at the time. Yeah. So we can apply that all throughout history. We can apply, and when you see a lot of the writing, historical writing and records, it's all through the eyes of men. So so anyway, so I learned to forgive him because of that. Because he's (laughs) a product of his time. Of his time, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, and see the lens that he was looking at the world through. Absolutely. And I think I think it's really good to keep that in mind when we are talking about the gender code and we're talking about gender differences and structural issues, that everyone is doing the best they can with what they have at the time and based on their environment. And that's and that goes for everything and us as parents and, and everything. We're doing the yeah. best. But then he didn't seem to know about bonobos. So there's been studies done. Okay, and most of them are in captivity, these and studies. Just for the listeners, bonobos are After, a type of ape, correct? Yes, yes, yes correct, okay. yeah. <laughs> and primate species because the women are actually still smaller. They're smaller, but they're more dominant in a group. And like I said, this has been many studies, but they're mostly in captivity. What happens in the situations with the bonobo groups? Women are smaller, men are still bigger, but women group together and they... Mm basically lead and rule the pack. And look, I don't advocate violence, but if if a, if a male's out of line, he gets attacked by a group of women to bring him back in line. And this is one of the things about the gender code. It is, you know, embedded into culture and society. It's not someone sat around and did this, but if we're thinking about mate guarding and that women together are, are powerful, then if you have a look at a lot of the cultural codes, they separate women. They, you know, create divisions between women's groups because the gender code knows how powerful women are. We bring life into the world. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, that's the single, I think, biggest reasons why we have the gender code. Yeah, yeah. And even if you look at example being an abusive spouse like it's it's pretty well known that the way that process starts is by separating someone from their family from their friends from mm-hmm. their support isolating them uh, so that they're not able to reach out they're not able to ask for help so that they feel powerless it's very true it's just an observation right yeah, yeah. because mate gardens guarding can range from vigilant to violence and everything along the way so it's a whole spectrum right yeah yeah so Let's talk about, so we already talked about this a little bit, but I just love this little quote in your in the book that says, motherhood bestows a cognitive advantage, which we've already talked about, all those massive skill sets and moving pieces and everything. But I love that you got a quote from someone you interviewed and he's talking about a single mother with children. And he says, they are masters of getting shit done. When I give her a job, I can 100% rely on her. And that's 
giving credit to those skills that we don't get paid for, but that they're actually reflected in the workplace. Like when you ask employers, there's the evidence, right? I've had someone say too, when you want something done, you ask a busy person because Mm -hmm. they're the masters of really getting things done. So it's just that transfer of skills from home to work, even though one's not in theory paid, it's still actually a tangible skill that you're learning. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also around energy and attention uh, and, and intention. So thinking of people's environments and circumstances and their higher purpose, if you've got all the responsibility on you, like all the responsibility, mm-hmm. everything pretty much you do has to be intentional and it has to be the best use of your energy. So if you translate that to all thing, things that you're doing in all realms of life and then especially at work, then if you're doing that, you're bringing your best self, you're bringing all your skills, you you do things and you get them done. I feel so privileged to have had these conversations with with these people. So John is a uh, senior leader who shared that with me. He's a senior leader in a petrochemicals, global petrochemicals company, male dominated. The thing with John is he sees people. He sees Mm -hmm. people and their skills and their abilities and he recognised very early on in his career adventure that it's more important to get the people that can do the job, ask the questions and be better than him to make him look good. He's very transparent about that. And he said that a, a working parent, a single mother and with a mortgage is the most efficient and cheapest productivity training that you will ever get. He he notices it before parenting and after, before becoming a parent and after. And he's been a leader for 30 years. And he has has actually half of his team is women. And he has a a really great coming back to work policy and strategy, I would say. And every single one of those women that he's had has progressed to management and leadership after coming back from parental leave, and some of them have leapfrogged their male counterparts. And that's what, what the best leaders do. They they hire people that, that can uh, rise to the occasion. And what I remember, his name's Albert Kulo, but he's in a mortgage company. I was listening to him the other day, and he said, you never know. Sometimes the people that you think are totally going to shine do not mm-hmm. shine at all. And the people that initially don't stand out in the interview, they don't seem that great. They just completely just rise to the top in this acceleration that you totally don't expect. And it's just interesting to see how that plays out in a workplace. Perfectionism, mm. it's, it gets in our way, doesn't it? How does that influence our, our relationships, our workplace? It's a real thing and it can be a good thing, but it sounds like it's got some sharp edges too. Absolutely. And this is for all of us to define where we are on that spectrum. Because for one person, it might be excellence. Another person, it's perfection. Perfectionism, we're all different. But a Chief um, Operating Officer of an international bank shared with me, she said she's a recovering (laughs) perfectionist and she said that perfectionism is by far the biggest stone we carry on our X chromosome. And she has worked with a lot of men, as you can imagine, in that role, that they're just not as bought into perfectionism as women. And, And she said that they don't seem to have a bow and, you know, a ribbon and a bow, you know, tied around everything before they present it. They're happy to just present without the ribbon and the bow. And that's good enough. Move on to the next thing. And that helped me look further into it and where it all came from. But in terms of her, you know, perspective on that, she says that 
happens is when we're spending that extra time putting the, the bow and the ribbon, we're actually preventing ourselves from moving on to the next project, mm-hmm. to moving on to the next opportunity. She says that we're actually handicapping, handicapping ourselves. Yeah, we're taking that time that we could be spending on something else, on something valuable, to putting on those little finishing touches that probably you're the only one that notices. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's an excellent point. Is this excellence or is this perfection? Or will this help me to get to the next opportunity? Or can I stop now to get to go to the next opportunity? And I looked into it and it's like, where did all this come from? And once again, it's structural. It's the gender coding. Women are, the messaging is that we're to be attractive, small, quiet, agreeable. And Brene Brown's done um, some great research on this as well. If we wind back to when we're children, it starts back then. Women are typically judged on packaging, on performance and Mm behaviour. So if we think about, this is something very obvious to me when my kids were little, having all boys, that when little girls, we'd meet up with little girls and many people in my world, I noticed doing it. One of the first things they say is, hi, Sally, I love your sparkly shoes. Look at your pretty hair. And look, it's so natural. We we just want to, we want to just embrace them or share, express how we feel about them, which is so understandable. If we're saying, if we're, and then so what happens if we say that and there's this big dose of happiness and adoration and she's feeling that and how does she feel? She feels like she's loved and she belongs and so we're creating a value system. She's getting hit a serotonin too, right? Like she's getting those feel-good chemicals and it's almost creating this chemical dependency on praise and, and recognition. Absolutely. So, and then that continues throughout life and, and, I, and I think if we're ever wondering what we value in our world, in our families, in our workplace, we look at where the resources are going. So where our time and our money. So you look at your calendar and you look at your bank statement, credit card statement. And for women, we you know, typically dedicate quite a few resources into external presentation and packaging. It's not such a hard leap to see why we're so focused on packaging and presentation and putting bows and ribbons around things that work as well. We've, you know, we've been conditioned with that as being something that's highly valued in our society. Yeah, for sure. Along these same lines, but the 80-20 rule and the fail fast, and that's kind of part of breaking free of that whole perfectionism thing. Do you want to talk about that for just a minute? Yeah, so this is really interesting. So someone I interviewed, she's a real dynamo, worked for a not-for-profit as a CEO and some other things. And she said that she's just not into perfectionism and she chooses to fail fast. And so I looked at failing as an experiment to tweak and we talk about it a lot. And I'm like, it's one thing to say this, but it's like, how is it going to be really meaningful for us to latch on to? Because if you look at our school system, everything is about testing, about getting it right. So if we look at it, life as an experiment, so we just, we fail fast, move forward, move to the next experiment, continual tweak. And then she also told me about this 80-20 rule. And I thought, I'm going to look into that. So it's something called the Pareto Principle. And it is backed up by science that getting 80% of a task done requires 20% of the effort. But then getting that final 20% 
of, of the task done, assuming 100% is perfection, but it's not possible, it takes 80% of the effort. And I was really surprised about that. And I thought, anyway, and I, so I thought, yeah, maybe it's not universally true. But if we think about that, reflect on that, then when tasks that you're energised about that you want to get done, you can get it done in breaking the cycle of perfectionism, just having an experiment with it, just trying something different. It doesn't have to be permanent, but trying different ways to question the perfectionist model. I've talked about this with other guests on the show and we talk about how maybe they have a project or something they want to do, but they want it to be like perfect. They want to have all the pieces. They want to take all the courses. They want to learn everything about it before. And that actually prevents them from actually starting. And and an example for me was even this podcast. I wanted to be able to do every piece of it, do it perfectly. Two years I wanted to do this. I haven't done it. And someone finally said, you know, why don't you use a producer? Like, why don't you hire someone who knows about podcasts? You do what you're good at, which is talking to people. And let them do what they're good at, which is putting it all together. And when I finally did that, boom, it all came together. It became easy. It came fluid. It wasn't taking up so much of my time. And now slowly as time goes on, I'm taking little bits back, right? Now I do the show notes. Now I do a bit of the editing. And it's slowly becoming this progression where I'm doing more. But I'm not stopped from starting because it's this giant like pile of rocks that I got to move. It's just this little thing that I know how to do. And over time, I'm going to figure out how to do the rest of it. And for me, maybe, I don't know if that's the 80-20, but it was really important for me to be able to reframe that and say, I don't have to do this whole thing perfectly. There's other people that know how to do this. Start with what I'm good at, and then we'll move on. We'll move on from there. I love that. That's brilliant. I wish I had known that before I wrote the book. (laughs) I would have put it in there, Monica. (laughs) Oh, goodness. That's funny. So speaking of the book, I think we're almost out of time here. I'm going to put um, show notes about the book, links to the book, links to whatever you've got going on, your social media handles, things like that. Do you have any special projects though or anything's coming up that you want to share with the listeners or any last things that you want to share before we wrap up here? I do have a few things coming up, but what I would love to, to just leave everyone with is to get curious, no matter where you are, if you're in the middle of overwhelm, if things are really tough, then it's going to be different approaches. If you're at a crossroads with your career and you're wondering where to go, there's another set of you know challenges. And I have frameworks in the book that can help with that. What I would say, the couple of little things is get curious. So just get curious. In the moment when you're stressed and or anything, how am I feeling? I notice that I'm feeling overwhelmed right now and creating kind of distance. If you're wondering where to head, Get curious about what's really important to you and then use your strengths. Leverage all those unique strengths and capabilities that are really unique to you and use that with your internal compass to get to where you want to be. Wonderful advice. And thanks for being on the show. I did. I truly enjoyed the book. First, I downloaded on Audible and then I realized I wasn't going to have time to listen to all of it before we got to our interview. So I downloaded it on Kindle because I'm a much faster reader than I am a listener. But honestly, both varieties were fantastic. I highly recommend picking up a copy. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining me, Danielle. Thank you, Monica. That's it for this week. To get more information on any of my guests or to book me as a speaker at your next event, please visit jugglingwithoutballs.ca and you would totally make my day if you left me a review or you sent me an email at monica at jugglingwithoutballs.ca and let me know what you got out of this week's episode. I'm hoping to read some of those reviews and some of those emails on future episodes. Have a great week, jugglers. Jugglers.